Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Malaysia was dominated by a single political party for more than 60 years. That party lost power in part because of a political scandal involving Najib Razak, then the prime minister. Mr. Najib was convicted of abusing power and sentenced to 12 years in prison. But now he's back on the campaign trail. Few men's garments can match the dishdasha for elegance and comfort. It looks like a collarless, ankle-length dress shirt and is worn by men throughout the Middle East. In Oman, however, wearing the wrong colored dishdasha could result in heavy fines. First up, though. Early this morning... Ukrainian forces appear to have destroyed a Russian landing vessel in the port city of Berdyansk on the Sea of Azov. But around a dozen Russian warships remain off Ukraine's southern coast, raising fears of an imminent amphibious attack. Meanwhile, the United States formally accused Russia of war crimes. And Joe Biden is in Brussels for meetings with European allies, including Jens Stoltenberg, NATO's secretary general. We are determined to continue to impose costs on Russia to bring about the end of this brutal war. We pay tribute to the great courage of the Ukrainian people and uh, the Ukrainian armed forces fighting for the freedom. This morning, President Zelensky asked people across the world to take to the streets to support Ukraine one month on from the start of the Russian invasion. Continues. The acts of terror against peaceful people go on. One month already, that long. It breaks my heart, hearts of all Ukrainians and every free person on the planet. That's why I ask you to stand against the war. But as peace talks continue between Ukraine and Russia, so does Russia's relentless bombardment of civilian targets. So I'm at the Zaporozhye epicenter hypermarket, which is serving as the needle eye for, for all the refugees leaving Mariupol. Oliver Carroll is a correspondent for The Economist based in Ukraine. And so I'm just been here for the last two days witnessing the, the convoys of cars and buses all smoked out, some of them missing windows, uh, of these desperate, desperate people fleeing. And what are you hearing from from people that have left? What's what's their journey been like? The people I speak to here are just harrowing tales of of starvation, without water, without food, without electricity, and just the journey out. They're taking their cars if they have cars. Some people are leaving on by foot. Some people are leaving in wheelchairs alongside the road because there's no other option. It's become so bleak. 
So they're leaving the city and many of them haven't seen the center of the city for weeks because they've been in their cellars. And then they have to get past the, first of all, the Ukrainian checkpoints and they're obviously waving people past, but then they have to get to the, through the Russian checkpoints. I spoke to a family who told me about the difficulty of getting past that second set of block points. And they said how relieved they were when they reached Ukrainian checkpoints. It's really important to, to emphasize here, there are no established green corridors. People are leaving on their own, taking the risk. They then have to move through an active war zone and there are reports of horrific injuries people have received. It's been a never-ending story of terror and desperation, and it hasn't finished yet. Is there a city left in Mariupol? Is, is the bombardment still happening? Are there any buildings still standing? I mean, how, how, how bad is it? So there are various estimates between 18 and 90% of the buildings are have been bombed out or unusable. But even in those buildings, there are people sheltering in the the bomb shelters down below. These are people who aren't the richest people in the world. 300 euros a month, that's considered a good salary. They never had anything like savings. A lot of them didn't have cars. And so even if they wanted to leave at the beginning, they didn't have the chance. These are the people who left behind. These are the people who were too poor or infirm to leave. And this catastrophe has struck the weakest, the most vulnerable. And they're reporting essentially a city which is no more, a city which has been razed to the ground, in which they're seeing bodies of people left on the side of the road, strewn across the road, some without limbs, without heads. So some of the people I spoke to, they were almost uh, breaking down when they were describing the, the hell that has become of their city. To call it a catastrophe of immense proportions is probably an understatement. And are they are they completely without services there? Is there's no, there's no there's no water, there's no electricity. Is there a functioning hospital? There has been no water since the end of February. There has been no electricity practically since the end of February. There has been no light and no gas since the 2nd of March. And since the aerial bombardment campaign began on or around the 10th of March, it's since been stepped up. Initially it was 2 to 4 bombs per day. Now we're talking about near 100 bombs per day, also being joined by uh, shelling from, from Russian ships at the sea. They have targeted some of the, the crucial civilian infrastructure of the emergency services. There, is, there are no emergency services effectively left. There is one hospital which is working valiantly, heroically, through the shelling. The operation theatre was bombed. They had to move it to the ground floor. They're now continuing to work on the ground floor with heroic work from the doctors. And of course, all of this is reminds you very much of Aleppo. And that seems to be the calculation the Russians are making. This is a very, very cruel campaign. Uh, if you want to make sense of it, you would only say that Russia is trying to make a, an example of Mariupol to warn other cities like Kharkiv, like Chernigov, which are 
almost in a siege, almost surrounded by Russian forces. What might happen if, if Ukraine puts up too much resistance? It's a very desperate tactic. If this is what victory looks like, I wouldn't want to know what defeat looks like. And is there is there any humanitarian assistance or food getting in? They've been attempting to send in humanitarian assistance and take people on the buses coming back. In one case, the humanitarian assistance headed towards Mariupol was confiscated by various Russian soldiers on the on, on the checkpoints going there. In another case, some of the drivers weren't allowed to go on to Mariupol and were told to evacuate people from Russian-controlled territories to Russia. There is no humanitarian corridor to speak of, and this is four weeks into the, into the conflict. We're now at a stage where people have been four weeks without any livable standards, with completely unhygienic situations. And in, in, imagine the very basics of not being able to turn on the kettle for for a cup of tea, not being able to flush the toilet for four weeks, having to live underground in temperatures outside, which were minus 10, unseasonably cold conditions for Mariupol. They don't usually get this kind of weather in February, let alone in, in, in March. It's been a, a culmination of the most terrible luck for, for these Mariupol people. And it isn't ending yet, unfortunately. Ali, it's good to hear your voice. Please take good care of yourself. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure as always. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There are political scandals. And then there is the case in 2020 against former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak. Najib Razak has been sentenced to 12 years jail, and he's also been fined 49 million US dollars for abuse of power over state investment fund 1MDB. It's alleged hundreds of millions of dollars from the state fund made their way into his accounts. Malaysian High Court judge says the prosecution has successfully proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt. Hundreds of millions of dollars appeared in Mr. Najib's bank account shortly after $4.5 billion had been looted from 1MDB, a state investment fund. Mr. Najib claimed the money wasn't for his personal use, but a gift for his political party. Recently, he has spoken of his desire to return to elected office. Any politician who would want to play a role would want a seat in parliament. Which might seem a fantasy given what has happened to him. But the former prime minister does now appear on the verge of making an astonishing comeback. In recent months, Najib Razak has once again been at the center of Malaysia's politics. Charlie McCann is a Southeast Asia correspondent for The Economist. This month, he spent a lot of time in Johor, which is a state at the tip of the Malaysian peninsula. He was campaigning on behalf of his political party, 
Umnom, and he was doing a lot of good work for his party. He drew huge crowds for local candidates. He gave stump speeches. Hello, saya Peter Boy. And all of this activity really paid off. So the Barisan Nasional, or BN, which is a coalition of parties of which UMNO is the biggest, went on to win 40 out of 56 seats. But I think you can argue that the biggest winner of that election was actually Najib, even though he wasn't even on the ballot. And that's because this victory in Johor could well pave the way for his return to mainstream politics. Which seems remarkable, given that he's been sentenced to 12 years in prison. Can you just remind us the details of the case against him? Yeah, so Najib served as prime minister for nearly a decade until 2018, when on his watch, Amno's alliance was voted out of government for the first time since Malaysian won independence more than 60 years before. And that was in large part because Najib was involved in this massive corruption scandal. So about $4.5 billion was looted from 1MDB, this state investment fund that Najib had helped to set up. And it just so happened that around this time, $700 million appeared in Najib's bank account. So Najib has always maintained that this money was a gift and was intended for the party rather than his personal use. But he certainly raised a lot of eyebrows he had an extensive collection of flashy sports cars. His wife had a number of tiaras and wardrobes full of Hermes handbags. And the authorities in America and in other countries as well have concluded that the money that appeared in his bank account was indeed for his personal use, not for the party as he claimed. And so in the first of five trials, he was actually convicted of several charges of abuse of power and money laundering and was sentenced to 12 years in prison. So I have to ask, if he was sentenced to 12 years in prison, why isn't he there? What's he doing on the campaign trail? That is a really great question, John. I mean, you would have thought that a scandal of such epic proportions would have been enough to end the career of any politician but Najib has this talent for resurrection. So he's not in jail right now because he has appealed and that appeal is currently being heard by Malaysia's highest court. So while the appeal is being heard, he's out on bail and he is making sure that his party knows just how valuable he is. And this local state election in Johor wasn't even the start of his comeback. So his influence was on display in August when he helped to engineer the fall of this national government led by a rival party that was not doing terribly well. And as a result of these machinations, his party, UMNO, joined the ruling coalition. It appointed their own man, this rather gray apparatchik named Ishmael Sabri Yaakob, to serve as prime minister. So having achieved that, Najib then went on to prove that he is still really popular in certain parts of the country. So last November, Umno also won in a state election in Malacca. That victory was credited to Najib, who was the face of that campaign there. And this month, when he repeated the trick in Johor, he drew so much adulation that a researcher I spoke to said it bordered on cult-like. So are Malaysians not put off by his past, by his scandals? 
Some Malaysians definitely are put off by him, but others aren't. When Najib was in power, the economy was doing pretty well. People felt fairly prosperous. And right now, a lot of Malaysians are suffering. The pandemic hit Malaysia hard. And many voters remember that when Najib was in power, he rewarded supporters with cash handouts and aid. And they feel that later governments have not been as generous. So do you think he can successfully stage a comeback? And if so, you know, what does that mean? Where does he go? So UMNO is certainly feeling very confident at the moment. It has enjoyed a trio of recent victories at the provincial level. All of this is piling pressure on the prime minister, Ishmael Sabri, that guy who Najib helped to install, to call an early general election to capitalize on the momentum. This is definitely what Najib wants. If an early general election is called, that could well pave the way for Najib to secure his old job. So if an early election is called and if UMNO returns to power beyond just the consequences for Najib himself, what does it say about Malaysian politics writ large? You know, in 2018, when UMNO was voted out, it was replaced by this reformist coalition of parties. The fact that UMNO now has this momentum, is, is winning these state elections, does suggest that the country is maybe returning to this old-style politics. That would be great news, of course, for Najib, but bad news for Malaysia. This is a system, after all, where supporters are rewarded with cash. So if we did return to that style of politics, that would further entrench patronage in the political system. This is also a system where one party clings on to power by inflaming tensions between Malays and minorities. Again, good news for Najib, bad news for the country. There are, however, still challenges standing in the way of Najib's potential return to power. Amno's performance in Johor was not actually as strong as the headline numbers suggest. Turnout at 55% was low, suggesting that politicians, Najib perhaps among them, you know, actually failed to fire up the voters. And there's still the no small matter of Najib's conviction. So it is hard to see how the political situation will unfold over the next year or so. But I think what is certain is that the opposition parties remain in disarray. And Najib is probably feeling pretty good about himself, given he has proven just how popular he is with the public. All right, Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. The Dastasha is the national dress worn by Omani men. Elise Burr writes about foreign affairs for The Economist. It sort of looks like a dress shirt that extends to the ankles. It's normally white or another light color like beige. And the government of Oman is taking a tough action to preserve the look. Tell me about tough action to preserve sartorial standards. What does that involve? Well, the Ministry of Commerce recently laid out standards for how dishdashes must look. They can't have a collar, and they must be a single color in the body, though you can have a different color for the embroidery that goes on the neckline and chest and uh, the cuffs. And normally, people will choose to go also with a light color for the embroidery, like a light blue, but um, teenagers like bolder contrast, like uh, black embroidery on a white dishdasha. 
And why is the Ministry of Commerce propagating these standards? Well, I think it's because they're trying to preserve Omani culture and foster a national identity. The Ministry of Culture and Heritage budget has been doubling over the past decade. Oman is really trying to promote itself as the sort of torchbearer of a real Arabia, and that involves really emphasizing its natural beauty and authentic culture and long history, and that's in contrast to sort of the flashy gimmicks of nearby Dubai. And how is the government going to enforce those rules? Yeah, well, under the new rules, anyone caught wearing uh, a dish dasha that deviates from the standards could be fined up to 1,000 Omani Riyals, which is the equivalent of 2,600 U.S. dollars, which is a really big fine in Oman. The Omani government has put out rules governing national dress before. Last year, they forbade businesses from putting logos or trademarks on traditional clothing. Under the previous sultan, they required boys to wear the distasha at school. But these fines are unlikely to be widely enforced. Uh, it doesn't seem that a lot of people are sort of traipsing around the street in rainbow distashes at the moment. But even so, I mean— I can imagine some some pushback against being told how to dress. What has the general response been in Oman? It seems like actually most Omanis really back the idea of finding people who are wearing uh, dodgy dish dashes. I spoke to one man called Abdullah who said that, you know, if you mess around with the dish dasha too much, it's going to lose its original flavor. So you mentioned Dubai before and Oman's desire to set itself apart from Dubai for tourism reasons. Are these rules then designed to boost tourism, to give the country a certain image that attracts tourists? I think it could be. In 2020, the Ministry of Heritage and Culture merged with the Ministry of Tourism. So they're definitely trying to reinforce the connection between the two. And the government's also going to soon launch uh, Oman Across Ages, which is a big museum that is aimed to instill a sense of pride among young Omanis. And these moves could boost tourism which is uh, a big part of Oman's Vision 2040, which is its plan to wean itself off of oil. All right, Elise, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow.